0: Good morning. Good morning. We uh, grieve and mourn the passing of our own Chuck Wolf. Uh, I presume that all of you have received the news by now. Um, logistically speaking, uh, his visitation, visitation with the family will be on Thursday, March the 9th from 4 to 8 p.m. Uh, here on our campus in Luther Hall. Uh, the funeral will be the following day, Friday, March the 10th at 11 a.m. Following that, there will be a luncheon. Um, The Bible uh, says that when one member suffers, all suffer together. And when one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Cindy, we are in this with you. Uh, We will walk with you and love you and accompany you uh, all the days of our lives together. We're glad glad you're here. Let us pray. good and gracious God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for the promise of eternal life, which you testify to over and over in your word. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, who you have created us to be and called us to be. Uh, We thank you that we are not alone in our life's journey, uh, but we have you And most of all, we have you through each other. So we thank you for this body of saints, this family of Christ here in this place. Comfort and console all of us. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon today is from the Old Testament uh, first lesson assigned to this Sunday. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. My sermon title for today is based on chapter 3, verses 5 and 7, where it talks about your eyes will be opened. So my sermon title for this morning is Eyes Truly Opened. Eyes Truly Opened. During the years I've been preaching since my ordination, I have preached most frequently from the four Gospels, uh, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Since they tell the story of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that comes as no surprise. I suspect that that is also the case for most, if not all, Christian preachers. Other than that, however, I have preached most frequently from the books of Genesis and Acts. I never really thought that much about that. I just thought they had the best stories until one day someone pointed out to me that they were both books of beginnings. Genesis in the Old Testament, narrating the original creation of the world and the human race, and Acts in the New Testament, narrating the beginning of the Christian church after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I think in many ways, many of us, even if subconsciously, are trying to get back To go back in time and space to a simpler time, a more innocent time, home, however it is that we might define that. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, opens majestically. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. There are really two different creation accounts in the opening chapters purporting to come from two different sources. Uh, The first account of creation from the opening words, that is Genesis 1-1, through chapter 2, verse 4. And the second account from there, chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 3. There are subtle differences in tone, style, vocabulary, etc., but perhaps the main difference is where humankind falls in the order of creation. You see, in the opening chapter, humankind is created last, after everything else, while in the subsequent chapter, humankind is created first, before, for example, vegetation and animals. Our text this morning, whose details are a little more filled out, comes from the second of those two accounts. This particular text is chosen intentionally for the first Sunday in Lent and is paired with the gospel narrative of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil, perhaps for obvious reasons. Jesus is successful in his battle with temptation against the devil, while Adam and Eve fail in their similar battle against the serpent. In an overall sense, then, Jesus is actually reversing the order of the state of creation by conquering what Adam and Eve could not. Our second lesson, assigned for today, from Paul's letter to the Romans, makes it clear. Whereas Adam and Eve fell into temptation, thereby inviting sin followed by death into the world, and subsequent humanity was enslaved then to sin and to death, Jesus conquered temptation defeated sin and cheated death by his resurrection thereby securing for subsequent humanity the free gift of righteousness and everlasting life Jesus is doing what our original parents could not reversing the fall of humankind and restoring and reconciling us back to God if you think about this text from Genesis more deeply it is easy to sympathize with Adam and Eve. The text opens up. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. The first charge, duty or assignment of humanity is to till and keep creation. To benevolently watch over it, making sure that it flourishes. The Lord God commanded the man You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now, everyone in here who has ever interacted with a child knows that the root of temptation comes precisely from such pronouncements. You can do anything you want. Just don't do this one thing. You can go anywhere you want. Just not into that room. You can date whomever you want. Just not him (laughs) or her. (laughs) Particularly with children, but also with adults. The lone prohibition you give is the exact thing that intrigues and attracts and piques one's curiosity. That's the definition of taboo, isn't it? The allure or the enticement of what's forbidden. Oftentimes, if and when permission is granted, well, all the fun disappears. Secondly, if this tree is so dangerous, why is it even there? Why does God place it in the garden with Adam in the first place? Couldn't God have just created it some other place or at least put some uncrossable barriers surrounding it? I mean, you don't leave the kitchen with a gas stove on and say to a toddler, by the way, when I'm gone, don't you touch that blue flame over there, do you? (laughs) Thirdly, what makes you think that Adam even understands the penalty of death in the first place? He's just been created. No one else yet exists. (laughs) He's not even seen so much as a flower die. (laughs) How can a threat be a deterrent when you don't even know what it means. You can see we're cruising for a bruising quite rapidly here. <laughs> now, let's go a little deeper. The very next verse, which we didn't read because it's outside of our assigned text, says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his partner. Eventually, in verse 21, God takes a rib out of Adam's side and creates woman who will eventually be named Eve. So, my point is that Eve isn't even around yet when God gave his command not to eat of the fruit of this particular tree. Adam alone received the command because Eve didn't even yet exist. Now, obviously, she's aware of the prohibition by her dialogue with the serpent in chapter 3, but she's only heard about it, presumably and apparently, secondhand from Adam, as opposed to firsthand from God. So that at least possibly dilutes the force of it. Furthermore, some biblical translations, some ancient biblical translations, leave out the phrase from verse 6, who was with her, leading many scholars to post that Adam wasn't even around when this original temptation occurred at the hands of the serpent. That is not to exculpate Adam from any guilt. He certainly ate of it either then or later. But it is to suggest that the one who directly heard and received the divine command perhaps would have been more reluctant to yield than someone for whom the command was hearsay. And to add to your exasperation, what is the serpent even doing there in the first place? Where did he come from? What kind of garden is this? Ugh. I don't know. There are some unsavory elements in this account. And finally, when Eve succumbs in verse number 6 based on three things. Number one, the tree is good for food. Number two, it was a delight to the eyes. And number three, it was desire to make one wise. Two of those threes harken back to chapter 2 verse 9 wherein God purposely designs the trees of the garden to be, and I quote, pleasant to the sight and good for food. (laughs) I'm starting to admire Adam and Eve for holding off as long as they did. I probably would have succumbed much sooner. <laughs> Let's transition, shall we? It's done. The so-called fall of humankind, wherein sin and death enter the world, follows by one mere chapter, a creation about which the biblical author can write, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was Good. Actually, I'm sorry, very good. Notice the location of this particular tree in the garden, my friends. According to chapter 3, verse 3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is where? In the middle of the garden. Its location is central. Central to everything else. That's sad, isn't it? You get the sense that once the middle is messed up, everything else will be messed up. Once the core is violated, becomes rotten, everything else becomes corrupt too. Once your soul's relationship to God is severed, it makes sense that the rest of your life would fall apart or become empty. Ironically enough, the serpent told the truth in one way. He says in verse 5, your eyes will be opened. And in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened. But rather than opened in wisdom, they are opened in shame. They knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Apart from its literal meaning, being naked metaphorically means being weak, vulnerable, and helpless. Does anyone in here this morning know what it's like to be weak, vulnerable, helpless? To have to sew fig leaves together to mask certain things? To have to disguise and hide behind your guilt, your shame, the way you really are. Because if the truth ever came out, it would have devastating and catastrophic consequences. And so we hide ourselves from God and from each other. Do you know what I consider the chief irony in this text, my friends? Verse 5 of chapter 3, the middle part of the serpent's temptation. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Some say that's the real heart of the temptation, to be like God. The reason that's ironic, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. I want to be like God, yet I'm already created In God's likeness. I want to be God-like. And yet I'm already created like God. They are being tempted with something they already possess. They are already as is created in the image of God and in His likeness. You know what illustration or metaphor the earliest church fathers used for sin, they said sin was like a dog with a piece of meat in its mouth running beside a stream of water who stops and sees its reflection in the water and opens its mouth to acquire the meat it sees in the reflection in the water thereby dropping the real meat in its possession for a futile attempt at an unreal reflection in the water. Being tempted with something you already possess. How can the devil tempt us with something we already have? How can the serpent tempt us with being someone or something we already are? How can you tempt us with being like God when we're already made in his likeness? That's like offering me a hundred pennies when I've got a dollar bill in my pocket. That's like offering to take me to the movies when I've already seen it. How can we be tempted with love when we are already loved? How can we be tempted with acceptance when we are already accepted? How can we be tempted with excitement when we are already joyful? How can we be tempted to security, however that's defined, when God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the rest shall be added unto you. And your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask him. How can you tempt me to a better life when I've already received life more abundantly? How can you play on my fear of death when I already know that death has no sting? It has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O death, is thy victory? How can you tempt us with a tree when you and I already are trees? Planted by streams of water, Psalm 1 says of us, which yield our fruit in season our leaves, do not wither, and all that we do we prosper. You and I, my friends, were created very good in the image and likeness of God we were created. And yes, we fell into sin and as a result into death. But Jesus Christ has come. He has lived, died, and been resurrected and promised to come again, not to deceive us with false hope or illusory dreams, but to redeem us, to restore us, and to reconcile us back to God, to confer upon us the gift of His own righteousness, exchange yokes with us that we might have rest for our souls, and bestow upon us His peace which passes over All understanding. None of those are empty cliches or hollow platitudes. But they are very real promises of God. So we can sing along and believe along with that old gospel song, I told Satan... Get thee behind. Victory today is mine. But it's not yours because of your own strength or fortitude. It's not yours because you will successfully battle temptation from here on out in your life. Victory is yours because of Jesus. When you are weak, He is strong. When you fall short, He achieves. When you drop exhausted, He perseveres. When you are when you see nothing but sin, He forgives. When you loathe yourself, He loves you unconditionally. Comparing Adam to Christ, what does Paul say in our Romans reading assigned for today? Just as one man's trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all, so too one man's act of righteousness, Jesus's, leads to justification and life for all. You do not face the devil or his agents of temptation unassisted this Lenten season. The outcome is not in debate or doubt. Some of your Your efforts will be strong and valiant. Others will be weak and woeful. But because Christ has conquered, you, my friend, are victorious. That's eyes truly open. Eyes truly open. Amen.